episode 172 of the Pilot the Pilot podcast takes off now. Pilot the Pilot is brought to you by the Finer Points. These guys are constantly adding content to the Ground School app. Check it out at learnthefinerpoints.com. Hi, this is Stuart Corey, designated pilot examiner and captain for United Airlines. AV Nation, what is going on? And welcome back to the Pilot the Pilot podcast. My name is Justin Seams and I am your host. Today's episode is with United Airlines captain and DPE. That's right, he gives check rides. We have an examiner on the podcast, and not only just any examiner, but this DPE, Stuart Corey, gave me my ATP check ride a few years ago. I used him when I was getting ready to move on to the job I currently have now. We talk about the check ride and just how cold it was. The heater and the Aztec gave out. It was freezing. Probably the coldest I've ever been in my life. Maybe one other flight that I flew in the PC-12 flying freight was colder, but this was definitely a very cold, cold check ride. But Aviation, I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. I have Stuart on. He talks about his story, his journey to where he got to United Airlines and how it wasn't a straight path from point A to point B. Just like everyone would imagine, there's a lot of ups and downs in his story. Uh, and he is forever grateful for those. He's learned a lot and he's become the pilot he is today. And without those ups and downs, who knows? He might not be an examiner. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. If you do, please leave us a review on iTunes. Check us out on Instagram at Pilot the Pilot. And make sure to check out Pilot's Coffee, the best travel coffee. I promise you, it is so good. Give it a try, pilotscoffee.com. Aviation, I hope you guys enjoy this episode. So without any further ado, here's Stuart Corey. Stuart, what's going on? Welcome to the Pilot the Pilot podcast. Hey, Justin. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm excited to have you on. Uh, we were talking a little bit before about how we, this has been about a year in the works. And what we know, but most people don't know, is you actually gave me my ATP check ride. Uh, well, that seems like forever ago now up in Northeast yeah. Ohio. <laughs> yeah, I did on a, uh, on a very cold uh, Northeast Ohio day. That's right. Very, very cold day. That was uh, that was interesting. Uh, I recommend everyone to make sure the heater works before you <laughs> go take a check ride. Uh, it's definitely fun and uh, a good flight, that's for sure. I don't think I've ever been that cold in an airplane. Yeah, what's funny is, uh, and I think when you and I were trying to line this up, uh, I did that about uh, two or three months ago. I did a check ride in that same airplane, and the heater tripped off during the flight in that same twin. And uh, ended up giving the guy his uh, my gloves because he didn't have any gloves, and I don't even know if you had gloves. I didn't have gloves. Uh, <laughs> I think I, I want to think we transferred controls. Uh, it was all legit, but I, we transferred controls for about ten seconds just so you could warm up your hands Absolutely. during your uh, during your ATP check ride. So uh, I still was, have nightmares uh, about the how cold I was that day. Yeah, it was uh, it was pretty rough. So um, yeah, things uh, things sometimes don't change. That airplane's uh, still acting up a little bit. That's funny. Yeah. Maybe we should uh, raise some money for them to fix the heater. There you go. There you go. It's all, I think it's just a circuit breaker. It yeah. usually is. Yeah. <laughs> that is the truth. Well, cool. Well, uh, before we get into kind of the examiner side, I want to know a little bit more about you and why you even wanted to be a pilot in the first place. So what is, uh, what's your story? Why did Stuart want to be a pilot? Well, as everybody seems to preface, uh, it's pretty much the same, uh, but uh, you know, just a, uh, uh, childhood dream and uh, really fascinated with aviation since uh, I can remember. And I think really, oh gosh, it was uh, probably when I was a 
you know, teenager, young teenager, maybe like 12, 13, 14, uh, we went out skiing because I, I was born in a little town in Illinois. So we went out skiing uh, to my uh, aunt and uncle's out in Albuquerque. And my uncle um, had a 210. And uh, I remember going out there and uh, he took me out to the airport and um, showed me the airplane. And then we even went for a flight and the mountains were there, you know, just uh, flying around. And we actually, I think, took a flight up to uh, to Durango, Colorado to do some skiing. And I thought that was just about the coolest thing. Um, so obviously very impressionable and it, it definitely stuck with me. And then the whole Microsoft flight simulator and, uh, spent way too much time doing that, uh, in my, uh, my teenage years, high school days, you know, until two in the morning, uh, flying in and out of Chicago. Um, so yeah, it was just, uh, one of those things that I always, uh, thought would be really cool, but certainly was not something I planned. It was, it was just such a far, uh, far off dream. I, there's no way that I could have, I could have possibly done something like that. That would have been, um, I didn't really think that that was even possible. So what took it from that far off dream into what is now your career? How did you go from just a kid that was up in a 210 one time and flying flight simulator to actually making it to be a pilot? Yeah. Um, when I was, I think, sitting on the computer, my dad came came by one day, you know, came by in the where the computer room was, and he said, why don't you go out to the actual airport and take a flying lesson? He goes, I know the guy that runs the airport. I went to high school with him, you know, was, uh, some older guy. He was like the airport manager and instructor. And uh, so I did. And uh, that was, I think, my senior year in high school. And I uh, went out there and took a lesson. Uh, a couple lessons with him and uh, definitely got the bug and thought that was just about the coolest thing. And then um, ended up, uh, you know, getting a, a regular a flight instructor there right from the FBO because that guy obviously was a little busy. But um, and then started from there. So my senior year through that summer after my after I graduated high school was when I, I finished up my uh, private pilot and uh, and then went on from there. But it was. Um, it was just uh, really cool to be able to to go out to that uh, airport in my hometown, which is Quincy, Illinois. Uh, so it was a big airport, but uncontrolled airport. But it was uh, had big runways, which was probably good um, since I was learning to fly big wide runways. But uh, between between that and uh, and then just seeing all the commuter, we had a couple of commuter airliners that went in there. Um, some of the turboprops would come in and out of there, and uh, I used to check those out. So. Yeah, that's kind of how it all started. Yeah, that's uh, that's crazy. Quincy, Illinois. Yeah, I fly, I've flown there quite a bit recently, the job that I have now. So it's cool. Uh, really? I mean, obviously, I live in Chicago. So we, yeah, we, uh, we fly all over the place. Big airports, small airports. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. When you took that, um, that first flight lesson or kind of intro flight deal at Quincy or in Illinois, was it an immediate, this is what I'm going to do for my career? Or was it kind of just like, oh, this is fun. Let's kind of see how this goes and where we can take it. Yeah, it was more that. It was more just, hey, this is kind of a cool uh, activity. Maybe uh, being able to be a private pilot's a neat achievement. Um, but I really didn't think of it as a career thing. I really wasn't, you know, uh, tracking that way. You know, my dad, there, no one in my family other than my, my uncle, who I didn't see very often, that was a, you know, he was just a private pilot uh, out there. Uh, that was it. 
that's the only real contact I know. Um, my dad did have his pilot certificate um, from way back when. I think there's a couple of pictures of me when I was like two or three standing next to like a Cessna Cardinal. And uh, so, but then he was busy with, uh, with his work and never did any flying um, as I was growing up. Um, but I knew that he still was, was interested. And I think he, uh, he enjoyed the fact that I was, that I was interested in it, but it was certainly just one of those, yeah, this can be kind of a cool hobby. Um, really is kind of how it, how it started out. Yeah. When did you realize that it wasn't just going to be a hobby for you? Uh, when I was like a junior or senior in college and kind of made the commitment that, yeah, this is, this is what I'm going to do. So, um, yeah, it was not until, you know, about three or four years later, uh, that, I was uh, um, sitting at uh, college reading all the magazines, just like everybody else probably says on this podcast. Pilot shortage coming, pilot shortage coming. Uh, thinking that uh, this would actually be a pretty cool thing to do and you get paid to do it. So um, I did a ton of research and uh, talked to a handful of people that had been to different flight schools and uh, gone through different programs and what would be the best. Uh, because when I went to college, it wasn't... Uh, they didn't have a they didn't have aviation program, um, so it was just uh, it was just something that I knew I was going to end up doing after I finished up with uh, the four year degree. Did you have anything else in your mind of what you wanted to do? Was there like I'm going to be an accountant, I'm going to be a banker, or, or what else was kind I, of uh, yeah. talking you one way or the other? I, I really did it. Um, my my parents uh, kind of did. Um, it was uh, and it was all about uh, going to law school and. Uh, being an attorney, um, not that that was, it was pushed hard. It was just, uh, it was kind of the idea that kept getting thrown out there. Um, and I, I majored in English. Uh, and so, um, it was a lot of reading, a lot of writing and, uh, which was awesome. I enjoyed it. Uh, but then, uh, as I thought about it, I, I really didn't want to go to any more school, particularly law school. So, um, I knew that this would probably be something I'd have to get, if I was going to get this done, it was going to be something that I really wanted to make sure I did right, you know, and uh, made the full commitment. So, um, cause there was, you know, as everybody knows, when they start getting into this, it's a, uh, it's a huge, huge commitment financially as well as everything, you know, time, everything. And so that's really what it came down to is, uh, is just knowing towards the end of college, that's, that's what I'm going to do. Um, somehow I don't, I have no idea. I didn't know any airline pilots. I didn't know any way that was going to do this. Um, so it was, uh, it was definitely, a an adventure. Would you say there was a different mentality you had when you were training for your private uh, versus when you're training after you knew this was going to be kind of your career? Did you go after it harder? Did you try harder or did you keep the same mentality from the beginning as you did toward the end when you, you did know this is the career you wanted? Yeah, for sure. Um, I was, uh, at, at, in high school or just out of high school, finishing up my private, uh, it wasn't my, you know, my biggest concern, uh, but it was, it was just something that was going to be for fun and be able to just kind of enjoy it. And then, uh, but then when I finished up, uh, college and went down, I went down to, uh, Florida, uh, to a small flight school in Fort Lauderdale, Fort Lauderdale executive, which I'm sure you've been in and out of a few times, uh, FXC. And, uh, so yeah, there's a little mom and pop flight school down there. And I knew when I got to that environment, this was, you know, this was uh, no joke. And it definitely 
perspective changed. Uh, my focus changed and uh, um, really went uh, all in. That's a busy airport to learn at, man. That's like a, just a busy airspace. Every time I fly through South Florida, I always tell myself I will never fly VFR in a small airplane down here because it's just chaos, utter chaos. All right. So think about it. You know, Quincy, Illinois, which is out in the middle of nowhere. Uh, you know, it's, a, it's got nice long runways, but there's no control tower, nothing, just sitting in the middle of cornfields. And then I had that in like 65 hours, you know, and with a private pilot because after I got my private certificate, you know, my senior year in high school, I didn't really fly except if I had some birthday money or, you know, some extra money to like go out to the airport and, and fly every three or four months to scare myself. So I didn't really, I didn't really have any way to, to do that. And then I, I took that little bit of experience and got thrown into uh, uh, a busy um, executive airport with just a ton of corporate traffic and GA traffic that uh, goes in and out of there up in, uh, you know, in Southern Florida. So yeah, it was different. That's for sure. Was it a learning experience for you to come naturally? Were you like, yeah, that's not too bad. Oh uh, no, no, it was, it was a lot of, it was a lot of, uh, extra work outside of the airplane. And before I got even in, you know, to the flight school. Um, but you know, I think, I think, and I'm sure very similar, uh, stories that I've heard here as well as, uh, others that, that I've done check rides for have, you know, kind of the same deal. I mean, um, I remember, uh, at college, and by the way, um, let's just throw it out there. Uh, go Hawkeyes, University of Iowa. Oh, geez, here we go. Yeah, yeah, you know. <laughs> Got to, uh, but uh, I would skip class, and I'm not obviously recommending that to any uh, young people out there to skip uh, college courses. But every once in a while, I would skip class and, and drive from Iowa City up to uh, Cedar Rapids, which was the next, which was the biggest you know airport around, 20 minutes north. And sit at the end of the runway with my sporties radio and just hope that uh, there'd be a couple of airplanes that would come in. I could listen to them talk. So I was constantly uh, listening, especially the ATC stuff. It just it, that takes a little time, especially at a busy airport. Like, you know, I knew I was going down to Fort Lauderdale or, or anywhere. I wanted to get that. So, yeah, it was uh, it was definitely did not come easy. Um, but, you know, you just like anything, you work hard at it. I was I was just pretty focused. What's really interesting is even in I, in my training, I started at Ohio State University. Go Buckeyes. Uh, Whatever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we let our record do the talking, right? That's all I'm going to say. That's all, yeah. But I started at Ohio State in a class delta with a tower. But I felt very comfortable in that tower. But once you took me out of that, that environment, if I went to what I thought was a big airport in Fort Wayne, Indiana for a cross country or Pittsburgh or Columbus, I still was like kind of freaked out. You know, it's like whatever you're used to training with is so easy. And then I did, uh, I finished the rest of my training down in Charlotte, North Carolina, and it was an uncontrolled field. And I was so used to going to towered airports, I actually was more kind of out of my element when I went down to the uncontrolled field. So it's really interesting that you can, wherever you train is kind of like what you hold on to. And anything outside of your your usual can be really confusing and, and can be an issue. Absolutely. Yeah, it makes a big difference. And not to jump ahead to the, to the you know, to the checkride side of things, but it's, as you can you can imagine doing a check ride for someone that learned to fly at a non-towered airport that's just not used to doing much radio communication. If I ask them to go to the class Charlie or class Delta um, five miles over, and they've got to actually talk to ATC, it gets it gets a little uh, it can get a little sideways. So they just because they don't have you know they just don't have the the experience. So it's uh, you are you're definitely uh, environment which you learned and trained 
Yeah, and it's hard to, I mean, I guess it's different for every pilot too because it's like, what are you going to use this for? What are you going to use this certificate for? Are you truly going to go to Bravo's, to Charlie's? Uh, and true, are you just going to fly uh, in your in your backyard? You know, some people have strips or like a private strip or uh, uncontrolled field. Are you just going to hang out there? But when it comes to check ride, it's like, I mean, aviation is something that is very unpredictable and you never know when you're going to need to use those skills. So it's something that I, I do feel like they have to, they should be able to prove that they can do safely because you never know in what situation you're going to have to divert to a Bravo, you're going to divert to a Charlie, or you're going to have an issue and you have to talk to Tower and try to get it figured out. Absolutely. Yeah, you've got to be able to have, have those skills. They might not always be as sharp as they were when you did that cross country maybe three months ago because you just, just like anything, um, you know, use it, you lose it. But um, you'd have to at least have uh, some common knowledge to be able to, uh, to get that done, uh, to be able to, even if it's just to, if you're lost or disoriented and you need to just uh, get a hold of ATC for some uh, light following, it's a big deal. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, looking back at your training, uh, how was your training? Was there anything that you, you struggled with uh, other than ATC calls maybe down in Florida at first? Or was there any kind of subject matter you struggled with or check rides in general that you struggled with? Uh, I, I can't really recall anything that was like super difficult uh, that, you know, really was a huge struggle. But um, it all it all was it all was, you know, tough. I mean, we, it's a lot of information. And I went from, you know, the private pilot when I got there, I, I needed to build some cross country time. And then I was doing instrument training and from, you know, instrument, instrument commercial CFI, double I multi, um, you know, it was like in seven months and, uh, it was, so it was a ton of information, a lot of written tests and, uh, but that's all I did. Like it was, it was just, I was just immersed in that. So even if I wasn't in the airplane you know, I was standing in the flight school talking to four other guys and gals that were in the same boat, trying to, trying to figure it out too. So I can't really think, I guess the instrument training was probably the most intense as far as, you know, whether it was holding patterns or trying to, um, trying to get the, uh, the approach stuff wired and more than anything, staying ahead of the airplane. Uh, but yeah, it's just, um, it was all, it was all pretty, uh, pretty intense, pretty, uh, pretty tough. Do you wish you would have taken a little slower? Or are you glad you went at the pace you did? And sometimes I do. Sometimes I do wish it could have gone a little slower just because I could have enjoyed it a little bit more. Um, I think I still got out of it what I needed. I really did. And, uh, just like everybody says, I, I turned around and started being an instructor and that's when you really start learning this stuff. Um, you think you know it, but, um, when you start teaching it is when you really start grasping the importance and, uh, and the details of it. But it was, um, no, it was a good program. You know, they had, they did, we did part 61 and 141 at, uh, at the flight school. And, um, it was kind of a combination of both depending on the program. So, um, I, I think, it, I think it served, uh, really well in being able to get through it. Um, but there were times, yeah, I wish, you know, I probably could have enjoyed it a little bit more and, uh, slow, you know, slowing the whole process down a bit. Yeah. I think that's a, a, a big dilemma for everyone right now in training. You know, there's this whole seniority number. You got to get this done as fast as possible. And I'm very much on the side of this argument or not really argument, but kind of just, um, uh, which way you choose. I'm very much on the way of 
go getting this done as fast as possible and getting that seniority number because as this has proven in the last year or so, seniority really does matter and it can rule rule everything essentially. Um, but it is kind of a, a dilemma. How do you enjoy it and how do you get it done as fast as possible? You know, you want to make sure you you enjoy your time because you're not going to be able to fly single single engine planes that often. I mean, there's a lot of times I wish I could still go up in a Cirrus or uh, whatever it may be, but uh, you definitely need to get it done pretty quick to get to where you want to go. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think there are opportunities, even if you are in a pretty accelerated program, there's still opportunities to, to kind of take a, take a step back and, and soak it up a little bit. And I think we all, we all kind of do that even, even, you know, the training or even on our regular flights, sometimes we're hustling to get, get the flight off the gate or, or get the airplane in the air um, within reason. Uh, but there are still times that you can kind of kind of slow the process down a little bit, enjoy it. So I, I agree with you. There needs to be a little bit of a balance. Sometimes it has to do with just how the individual is wired. Some people are just, uh, you know, kind of fast paced natured, uh, being able to just, you know, blast through it. And they still enjoy it. Um, others, they whip through it and they're like, I don't even know what I just did. I don't even, <laughs> I don't even know. I don't even remember my uh, commercial check ride. I, I, you know, it went by so fast. So um, you're right. It has to be a little bit of a balance. And there's not a right way or wrong way. It's just whatever works best for you, right? Like if it takes you longer, it takes you longer. If you get it done in seven months, you get it done in seven months. Totally agree. I couldn't, uh, couldn't agree more. Yeah. It's just whatever, whatever works for you and your schedule and everything else that goes with it. So what was your career path like getting to United? We kind of talked a little bit about uh, your training, but we are at the point where you got everything done in those seven months down in Florida, and now you are uh, building your time. You're trying to get to, to United, to a major airline. What was next? How did you get there? Yeah, so I, uh, I thought um, when, I was, uh, when I was going through my training, when I got down to Florida and I started going through my instrument commercial, uh, actually when I first got down there, all, all I remember thinking was, okay, I've got an English degree from Iowa, and my vision is not that great and uh, not that great at all. And if I, it's correctable to 2020 and that's about as, it's about all to say. And if I'm going to be marketable or if I can at least, if I can someday be an airline pilot, I'm going to need to do something else. And uh, so in addition to taking the, the, the classes, I mean, the, uh, you know, the lessons at the flight school, Embry-Riddle actually had an outlet right there at the airport at Executive. And I, so I started looking at graduate classes there. And so when I wasn't flying in the daytime and building up my time or cross country, I took classes in the evening uh, for that, uh, for their master's degree and just tried to go, go through that. So after I finished all the flight training in the seven month period, I still had classes to finish up for the master's degree program. And while I was doing that, then the guy hired me as an instructor. So adult time instructing. Um, what's interesting is I would take guys from private instrument commercial. And then, of course, the next progression would be to their multi. Um, but even though I had an MEI, the guy, the old guy that owned the flight school, his son was also an instructor there. So every time a, a guy came up for his multi training, he would just give them to his son because obviously multi-time was everything, especially back then. Um, so I never really got any multi-time. So I had like two hour, two years of dual instruction given uh, in single engine airplanes, um, private instrument commercial with very little multi-time. So after I finished up the uh, graduate stuff at, uh, at Embry-Riddle, 
I went back towards uh, Quincy, back towards uh, hometown and landed in St. Louis, which is just a couple hours south of, uh, of Quincy. And that's where I ended up finding another flight school that had nothing but multi-engine, like really short course programs. So you could go into St. Louis and get your two or three day ATP or, or multi-rating or MEI. And then he also advertised block time so people could come in and build multi-engine block time um, as well if they bought, you know, like a block of 100 hours of, of multi-time. So I went there and instructed and um, and I built a lot of multi-time pretty quickly because uh, we were doing a ton of flight training there. And then when I was finished with all my instruction from like seven in the morning to like six or you know, five or six in the evening. Then I'd have two guys sitting on the couch wanting to build multi-time, you know, block time. Mm -hmm. So we, you know, top off the tanks and uh, we put them in the airplane and they, I had to ride along for, you know, insurance purposes as the MEI. So they, uh, um, we fly to wherever, uh, you know, turn around and come back. Um, So I'd get done around, eight, nine, 10, even later at night, and then wake up and do it the next day. So, um, I built some multi-time really fast and, um, the examiner, the DPE that came out to our flight school that, uh, gave all of our check rides, um, happened to also be the chief pilot for, uh, a commuter airline out of St. Louis. And one day, you know, I'm, I'm pulling the airplane out of the hangar you know, sweating. And he's like, uh, Stuart, how much time you got? And, uh, I rattled off whatever. I can't remember. It was like, had like 2000 total and 800 multi. And it was, Oh, well, uh, we're starting a new class, uh, in a couple of weeks. Uh, why don't you throw me your resume someday and, uh, we'll see if I can work something out. And there you go. Um, that was my, uh, that was my foot in the door to, uh, my commuter experience at uh, Trans States Airlines. Did you apply anywhere else, or was it kind of just like that's how you're just going to flight instruct until I figure out my next route? And he just yeah, that's funny. Uh, yeah, I mean I, it's so weird. Like I just was droning along, just constantly doing it. Like I didn't even really have a thought about what the next step was. I just knew I had to build time, and there wasn't a ton of hiring going on at the time. Um, so I just knew I had to build time, and multi time was was critical. So. Uh, to a lot of airlines back then. So I, it just so happened, you know, if you wouldn't have mentioned it, I probably would have been just doing the same thing, uh, you know, for months more before I finally, you know, got off my butt and tried to, uh, to put some applications out there. Cause I really didn't, I really wasn't looking. I didn't think that there was anything. I didn't feel that I was just quite qualified, um, at the time. Um, I probably could have been more proactive, but you know how you just get in that daily routine. You know you just uh, wake up, get your uh, get your flying in, and then go go to bed and get up and do it again. You're just not uh, not really thinking sometimes uh, long uh, long term. Yeah, and I think that that does happen a lot with people when they're in their time building, and it might be I don't want to say complacent. But they also feel pressure from the company they're at. The companies can do a good job of making them think that they're the at the best place they can possibly be, and they really want you to stay. So they'll kind of use every tactic they can. And if that you need to move on, you need to go do bigger things like go after United, go after Delta, go after NetJets, go after whatever you want, because 
yeah, it's just there's better flying to have. And, and it's good to have those jobs, those experiences for uh, when I flew freight for two years or three years to build your time. But I encourage everyone to continue to strive for the best job that you can possibly get. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, you, especially now um, in this environment today where it is, it's always been competitive and it always will be competitive. But um, when, when the hiring is fast and furious, it's super important to, uh, to try and stay ahead of it or at least keep the eye on the prize and not get too, uh, like you said, maybe not complacent, but just uh, comfortable uh, with, with kind of where you are and, and know that. And sometimes that's OK, uh, because, you know, we talked about this earlier about just kind of enjoying the moment and being able to soak it up a little bit. That's fine. Um, but if you kind of have to ask yourself, is this really what I want to do? Fly greasy old, uh, twins in, uh, St. Louis area for the rest of my, I, I don't, you know, it's not what we, what we signed up for. How long so, were you at trans States for before United came calling or the next opportunity? It was, uh, I think about six years. Yeah. And, um, about six years and, uh, date myself here, but, uh, they were just getting, the uh, the one forty five on the property. Oh wow! <laughs> was that uh, getting that kind of job the the dream job? I would say from from Continental was that one of the the best things that's happened to your aviation career? Was that like finally I made it? I'm a real major airline pilot, or have you always kind of? I mean, I kind of struggled for a while being like I'm a real pilot based on all the jobs that I've had. But was getting that job as a Continental pilot kind of like the for you that I made it? This is I finally did it. I like I'm at the creme de la crop. I'm I'm a real major airline pilot. Yeah, yeah, I would say so. I mean, it was a you know, it was a big deal. It was a uh, it was amazing. I was uh, I was pretty pretty excited about it, especially um, at the time Continental was. Uh, was really hiring a lot. They were really uh, doing quite well. And uh, the industry was going, you know, uh, going along pretty well. So yeah, it was, uh, it was definitely the job that I never thought I'd have. Um, it was something that uh, I never even thought I could achieve. As I said to you earlier, it was just pretty much would have been an impossible deal, but uh, being able to work through all of that and, and get to that, um, get to that level was pretty awesome. How long were you at Continental before Continental became United? Well, uh, how long ago was the merger? Um, so uh, I guess it was, well, I've been with Continental uh, 22 years. So, yeah. So, um, and and then, of course, you know, so it was all been, been at United 22 years, as we say. So uh, in the first, whatever, 16 was... Uh, was continental or whatever the merger was, but yeah, it was, uh, um, that was kind of an interesting, you know, time, the merger itself, but overall, um, it's been awesome. It's been awesome as an airline pilot to, um, to do what I do. I've uh, been able to see so many things and fly so many different aircraft, um, and, uh, experience a lot of different things. So one thing that stuck out to me when we did our the, my ATP check ride was the story of how you became an examiner uh, and then the kind of the time that it all happened. I think I remember you telling me maybe you had an application on your desk or on the desk to do it. And, and then the furlough came and you were looking for other things to do. And did you do landscaping? Is that what it was in between the furlough? If I was right, if I'm right. 
Yeah, no, um, I probably did. I think a little bit of that, but yeah, it was, it was after nine 11 and, uh, you know, cause it was, uh, I'd been with continental for three years, two and a half, three years. And so things were just really picking up. Things were really rolling along. And, uh, and then when I, um, you know, nine 11 on September, and then I think around December by December I was furloughed and, um, I think, uh, they furloughed like 300 pilots. And, um, I, they had an option. You can either go on the street and we'll call you, have a nice day, or you could go to, uh, and this is some irony here, or you could go to express jet or continental express and take your seniority there and see what it holds you. And I looked at that and it held, I held Cleveland where I lived at the time and still do. I held Cleveland captain, um, on the 145. <laughs> that I bailed it. So just when I thought I was going to go to training at uh, trans States and get a 145 type rating. And I thought, thank goodness, I don't have to go through that training. I ended up going to uh, uh, continental express and, and getting the, getting the training there. So um, that was at least a flying job, but it was half of what I was making as a first officer uh, at continental in the 737. So yeah, I had to find something else to do. And, um, quickly. So, uh, yeah, I, I did a little bit of landscaping, but more than anything, there was, uh, a guy putting in hardwood floors in new construction. And I remember asking him if he needed some help and he looked at me like I was crazy cause he knew I was a pilot for some reason. And, uh, he was, well, yeah, my younger brother helps me, but he's, yeah, every time I go by to pick him up, he's never, you know, he's still sleeping in. So yeah, hundred bucks a day. I'll, you know, if you want to, carry the wood in, open the boxes, lay it down. I'll, uh, I'll pay you. So I did that. You know, I, I applied to target, um, whatever. Um, but I did have a guy that, uh, suggested either just go into the FAA or throw your name in the hat with, as an examiner. And it was, it was something I always wanted to do, but I never really had any motivation to do it. And, um, so that, uh, that's really what uh, instigated the whole process. It's funny that you say you, you something you wanted to do, but probably didn't have the motivation to do it because that's the similar story that you're talking about with uh, going from being a CFI to a regional. It's like, you probably always wanted to do it. You just didn't really have the motivation to do it. So it's really interesting that that was kind of like a, a constant or a, current, a theme going in your career. It's like, yeah, I want to do it, but you know, I'm kind of happy with what I'm doing. It, yeah. Yeah. I kind of, uh, I kind of get a little comfortable or at least uh, just settled and uh, being able, you know, back to enjoying it a little bit and then uh, and then kind of go from there. So, yeah, it was. Uh, so I did I did that and, um, I, you know, put my application in and uh, it would took about, I think, start to finish about a year from the time that I put the application in to the time the uh, the FA said, uh, OK, Stuart, you can go out and do a private pilot check ride. Um, maybe a little bit longer than that, but, uh, cause it's, as you can imagine, a bit of a process, uh, to get, to get to that point. So, um, yeah. Going back, what was the original want to do it? Uh, did, did you like your examiners you had as you were coming up? Did you think you could do it better? Did you, uh, was that just kind of like a natural progression? You really enjoyed the instructor side and the examiner side and thought it was kind of like, the ultimate uh, kind of story to end being a CFI and then going to be in the examiner or was it just like we were talking about just, you needed something else to do. And yeah, I think I could do that. 
yeah, I think it was the fact that um, when I, while I was an instructor, I really enjoyed it. And I enjoyed, you know, seeing the progress and the success of your students, just like all the instructors that are out there listening. We all just, you know, you kind of enjoy seeing them get it, you know, that light bulb go off. And, and so I remember uh, thinking about, um, I did have some good experiences with the examiners that I, um, uh, that I had down in, uh, in Florida for the rest of my check rides. But more than anything, it was just the, you know, the need to, to just kind of share, maybe give back a little bit, stay involved in general aviation that kind of gave me my start where I, where I kind of, uh, got going. Uh, so that's really what it, what it came down to is to be able to, uh, to pass that stuff along really, and really just, uh, enjoying the same experience. So what was the process to going from an application to actually being an examiner? I'm guessing, uh, was it kind of like uh, you had to go through ground school? Did you have to take flights with an uh, FAA examiner? I'm sure they had to actually watch your first couple of check rides. What was the actual process like? Yeah, very much. Uh, so you're, once you complete the application, I think, and again, the process I'm sure is a little different now because um, that was a few years ago. Uh, but back then you, you sent that into Washington, D.C. And I think every three months they just review it. And the requirements are not... Uh, that high, relatively speaking, uh, you're uh, qualified, and they send once you meet the requirements, they basically send you a letter and then say, Congratulations, you meet the requirements to be an examiner. Um, this letter then allows you to go to Oklahoma City and take the one week course uh, down there. So you book that and uh, go down to Oak City for one week where they review everything from, you know, 61, 91, 141, all the different um, uh, training documents, advisory circulars. And then we, we even get into doing a couple of mock uh, check rides or orals. And, uh, you know, just a lot of the administrative side of things that's uh, part of being an examiner or doing check rides. And then once that's done, now it's kind of a, kind of a waiting game, if you will. Because it's all about whether or not the uh, the FISDO has a need. If the local um, FISDO that will manage you um, has a need for an examiner in that area, then uh, they will call. And that's exactly what they did. So that took a little while before that happened. But I think, I, you know, I talked to a lot of different examiners across the country and some it happens rather quickly and others it's a very, you know, it's a process that takes years. Uh, to, to eventually get to that uh, designee. So that's really the process. And then once they call, they sent, they brought me in for uh, an interview and it was like a panel interview. There was three inspector, FA inspectors and they asked me a handful of different questions. I can, can't really even remember, um, but it was a lot of different questions. And you got to remember, I was kind of out of general aviation for, a number of years because I was at trans states and then I was at continental. So I had just, you know, maybe grabbed a 172 a couple of times to just at least, uh, get my, uh, my currency up and, uh, you know, kind of go out and just knock the rest off and scare myself. But that was about it. So after the panel interview, they make their selection because I'm sure they had other candidates and then they, have to come out and ride with you, uh, go fly with you, or they observe a check ride with my 
approval, they, I got an airplane and I rode with an FAA inspector, an ops inspector. And then, um, and then the next check ride, once I was actually approved, they actually came out and I think watched it or observed the check ride for the private. And you're really only allowed you, they basically typically give you just private, sometimes private is for commercial to start out with, but they usually just start out with private. It depends on the demand in the area. And again, for those that are listening out there, this has probably changed quite a bit since, uh, since I went through that process, but I'm sure it's somewhat similar. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting to think about the demand. Uh, I, I don't know many people that want to be examiners. I don't mean maybe it's uh, I'm just not in that crowd anymore. Cause like you said, it's when you get into the airline or the charter or the fractional side of things, like you don't think the same as a student pilot or someone in GA, like your life isn't, I mean, you still know the regs, but it's not like you can't recite like what you can now. You're like 91.62. Like <laughs> that doesn't really happen anymore. You know, you have your AOM, you have your manuals that you abide by, your SOPs and all that kind of stuff, but it's just a different world. I'm sure you'd imagine that. And like, it's probably a little bit difficult going from that to uh, back to general aviation. I'm sure that was uh, a little bit stressful, just taking a couple of flights in a 172 going from, um, your, your, um, was it the, the turboprop at that time or that would have been, no, that would have been the 145, yeah. right? Yeah. 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 So yeah, absolutely. Well, I think, yeah, cause I was still furloughed. So I was flying, uh, the 145, um, at the time, but yeah. It, and even today, um, you know, I'll go out and fly a trip at United and, uh, uh, for three or four days and then come back and have check rides and, you know, crawl in a, so that's the 150 or 152 or, or whatever. And, uh, and it's, uh, so yeah, it's a lot of different, uh, it's a change of scenery. So you kind of have to, you know, just a different mindset to a certain, certain, certain respect. Yeah. And it's not like anyone does anything wrong or does anything right. It's just like, there's, it's, it's just different. Uh, you, you'll realize that when you're going up, but I'm, I'm sure flight instructors that have been there like lifelong, they think a little bit different than an airline pilot does. I'm not saying one does something wrong or does something right, but I'm sure you see the best of both worlds and the worst of both worlds. You're probably in a cockpit one day and you're like, what are we doing? How did this guy get his private check ride? Like, how does he not know this? You know? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. That does happen. Every once in a while. Yeah. Right? And it's crazy. You're like, wait, they're passing training. Like what's going on? Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, exactly. And you, you did go through training. You did have OE, right? No, no, it's usually, yeah. Well, it, it and you, you know, at that level, you know, at the airline level today, it's not that bad. But, but yeah, no. Sometimes even if I'll do a um, an instrument or commercial check ride, and we're just we're just working on the instrument check ride, and I'm sitting there doing the instrument check ride, and I'm looking at just basic private pilot fundamentals that aren't there. And I'm thinking, well, how do we even get to the end of the runway? And I haven't even seen a checklist yet. I, you know, I don't even you know, where, what's going on. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, you do see, uh, all different kinds of, uh, situations for sure. What has this whole experience been like for you? Not like flying in general, but actually being an examiner. I'm sure when you were going into it, you had this, uh, this whole idea of the examiner that you were going to be. And we all know, uh, even in aviation, you know, you have this whole idea about the cockpit you're going to run when you're, when you're a captain and you know, the pilot you want to be, but your experiences mold you into the pilot you are today or the examiner you are today. Do you think you are still at the level or have the same expectations that you had when you first started or have they kind of been tempered a little bit with some things that you've seen and changed throughout the, the years? That's a good question. Um, I think overall it's been the same. I, you know, I've been the same 
examiner throughout the years. And, uh, just like, uh, as the same in the, uh, in the airline cockpit, um, or whatever airplane, um, what has changed of course is regulations and the testing, whether it's the, you know, from the PTS to the ACS to, uh, different ways that we, uh, we, we do different maneuvers potentially. So that has changed, but most importantly, you know, just like anything, uh, but I think as a, as an examiner staying consistent, uh, with, with the way that you approach a check ride and maintaining an objective, uh, point of view when you walk into that and, and really trying to do your best to, at the end of the check ride, get a positive experience for the applicant and allow them to really walk away, uh, pass fail or otherwise. Um, just have a, have a good experience. Um, so yeah, I, I think I, I try and stay the same regardless of what type of check ride I'm doing and, and, uh, and you know, what airplane it is or where I'm, where, what airplane airport I'm located. But, uh, but other things do change and sometimes it, 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 uh, doesn't always go even the way I expected it to. Uh, yeah. so, so yeah, it's a, uh, it's a little different. I'm sure you definitely have expectations of how the ride is going to go. And then you show up and you can, can you tell pretty, pretty quick in a check ride when it's going to be a pass fail? Like, can you tell within the first couple of minutes outside from like a crazy, just brain fart and uh, just someone kind of falling apart in one situation where you have to fail them for safety. But can you usually tell pretty early? Is that something that body language or just the way the first couple of questions go, if it's going to be a pass fail? Yeah, I get that question a lot. And, uh, it, you know, oh, Stuart, you can, you can probably tell in the first 10 minutes and, you know, 10, 15 minutes, this, uh, this, uh, this, uh, person's going to pass. And generally speaking, that's true. Uh, but not always. And, um, what I've learned is number one, you always, I always have a clean slate when I go into any check ride. I don't have any expectations or, or, um, I guess, uh, I, I just don't, I don't expect that, you know, I just, I'm going to go in. We'll follow the ACS. We're going to cover what we need to cover. And I certainly hope they pass. I certainly do. Um, but it doesn't always go that way. And uh, sometimes, you know, that's one thing that I do. And the other thing is you just don't always, you don't make assumptions either. You know, I, I find that's one of the other things that as an examiner, um, or maybe even those that are out there flying with other pilots, maybe not necessarily on a, on a professional level, but just if you're out there building time, don't always make an assumption that the other pilot knows what you know or is going to, you know, grab the flight controls or or use the brakes when the brakes are supposed to be uh, be used to it for a touchdown. So, yeah, it uh, you do pretty much know uh, in that first 10, 15 minutes or so, but not always. Um, it's uh, it, like you said, uh, they can just kind of have a lapse and all of a sudden it just, you know, I. I had, I've had just, I mean, just the other day, you know, I've had, um, a guy, he leveled off a thousand feet low, misread the altimeter. Um, and, uh, instead of it, you know, uh, 2000 AGL, which would be pretty safe. We were at a thousand AGL and, uh, I, 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 you know, I tried to, I gave him a heading change to see if he's like maybe not looking at the instruments to see if he would catch it. And, um, that's, uh, nothing. 
And I did not expect that because the guy was pretty sharp and he was doing a pretty good job. Yeah, some people just just have bad days, you know, or like one bad moment. I I failed my instrument check ride, and it was similar. It's just I just I don't know what happened. Just at this one point in time, I was just kind of like brain fart and didn't know what I was doing anymore, and that was it. Uh, and when you talk about a positive experience in a check ride, that's really hard for the student that fails to to think about getting a positive experience. But at the end of the day, this is still a training environment per se. Like there's still something you can get out of it. You have a lot more knowledge than usually the person you are giving a check ride to. I'm sure there might be an odd circumstance where that's not true, but most times you are kind of the person with the most knowledge of everything. So it's still okay to get some information out of this check ride. If you fail a check ride, it's not the end of the world. It's important for you to realize that you can still get a job. I still got a job. Multiple people fail check rides and still get jobs. And as you go in the airlines, you'll see, like we said earlier, like, how the heck did this guy get a job? <laughs> but it, it's still possible if you have a good career. So don't hang your head up on it too much. And I'd imagine, like you said earlier, you don't really want to fail someone. I'm sure that can be awkward for both of you. And it's, it's not the, it's more paperwork. It's not the best experience for everyone involved. Yeah, no, it's, it's not what I, it's not what I want. I, I want everybody to make it through. I want everybody to have a positive experience. And I'll be honest, you know, uh, and there may be a lot of people out there that I've that are listening that I've given check rides to, and I, I think I'm uh, I'm okay in saying this. Even those that have have failed their check ride with me, after we do the retest or even the second retest, a lot of times they'll come back to me uh, and just you know confide and say, Stuart, that, that was I am such a better pilot because I failed that check ride, and it was you know I was I was pretty upset. I was even upset with you a little bit. Uh, I was certainly upset with myself, but at the end of the day, was, I'm, I'm, I'm glad it happened because I'm a better pilot now. I, I, I learned my, uh, you know, what was going on. I had no idea what I was doing. I just certainly wasn't prepared or I just kind of goofed that up. And, uh, you know, they actually are thanking you, you know, for, for the experience. And that's, that's a good thing. Yeah. I mean, when you fail a check ride, there's a lot of embarrassment and your pride's hurt. So initially you don't want to take the blame yourself and you want to throw that outward to the person that failed you, you know, but then hopefully a day or two goes by and you're like, oh, wow. All right. I really didn't mess that up. I deserve to fail and it's okay to fail. Like we've been saying. No doubt. And I've got a lot of people that, uh, that are doing check rides with me that are on a career track or, you know, they have aspirations to be, you know, a corporate pilot or uh, an airline pilot, and they are just devastated. And this is not going to, I'm not going to get my Delta interview or I'm not going to be able to, and that's absolutely not true. I mean, um, I mean, Justin, you fly with all types, you know, that, that have failed check rides or, or I'm sitting next to people that have failed check rides at United um, that are in the right seat of my airplane. It's, it's a, it's a normal process. As you said, it's part of training. It's a normal process of going through, um, this aviation, uh, training career. Yeah. And I'm not saying everyone should, should want to fail a check ride, but it's, it's also good to, to have some kind of adversity to show to an airline. Like I'm sure when United looks at applications and they just see pass, 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 like one, they probably think, yeah, they're probably a good pilot, but like, what are they going to do when crap hits the fan? You know, they haven't really shown any adversity in their life. They haven't shown how they handle anything. Like every single flight isn't perfect. So what do they do when things go wrong? What do they do when they mess up, when the plane messes up? Can they be counted on? They haven't really faced the adversity. So it might and it could give you a chance to kind of show what you do when you have adversity in your face. 
It's a great point. I actually uh, use that ex- exact item when I when I tell them, I, like, look, it, this is a positive. This is a story that you can turn into a positive during any interview experience or process. So um, be able to bring that up uh, during that panel interview or that one on one interview process and explain what happened, lessons learned and, and uh, turn it into a good thing. Um, they all appreciate that. Yeah, well, I would highly recommend you never lie. Like if you have anything failed, they're going to find out. And if you want this job, they would much rather you tell them up front, yeah, I failed two check rides. Don't just say you failed one or nearly failed two. It's like, just tell them the truth. This is your opportunity to turn this into a positive, like you said, and tell them the truth and come clean and just say, take ownership. I'm sure they would just love for you to say, I messed up. Don't blame don't be like, oh, Stuart Corey's fault. How dare him for, for failing me? They're not going to want to hear that. They're going to hear, I messed up, and this is what I did to fix it. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, you can uh, you can definitely just turn it around and um, take ownership and uh, turn it into a positive. That's all good. So as an examiner, you know that there are a lot of nerves going into check rides. It's not necessarily the most comfortable place for the first 10, 15 minutes. And as, you, as we kind of said, kind of talked about those 10 to 15 minutes can really set the tone for how the check ride's going to go. What kind of tips or better question is what does an examiner do? Do you feel obligated to kind of set the tone as a chill environment or a very professional environment? Like try to make it kind of a friendly one-on-one and ease the nerves or is that more on uh, just kind of the, the pilot needs to understand this is an important flight and it's either pass or fail type deal. Because I mean, at the end of the day at an airline check ride, they're not going to baby you. It's uh you either can perform or you can't perform, but as an examiner, as an examiner, how do you go through that process? So, yeah, that's a great question. And it's something that I, I really strive to, to set a good environment. And when I say a good environment, I mean a positive environment that allows the applicant to perform at their best, but not feel too stressed or nervous. And what I try to do is one, as you mentioned, set a professional tone and be able to let them know that this is a check ride. It's kind of a big deal. And it's a, uh, it's something that's uh, a milestone in, in their aviation training career. And when we get into the briefing and we start getting into the paperwork, um, I still then try to create those those common uh, areas, things that we can chat about that start to loosen the applicant up, loosen them up a little bit to be able to, uh, to just calm the nerves. You know, no matter what, I, I, uh, I don't lose sight of how nervous I was during check rides or, you know, the testing. And I don't remember having examiners that really cared whether I was nervous or not. They were just like, I'm going to start asking you questions and you can be over there sweating and shaking, whatever you want to do. But, uh, I think some enjoyed it too. They're like, Hey, I got them squirming right now. Yeah. I mean, you hang around this stuff for a while. You, you run into some pretty interesting characters. And, and so, so hanging onto that, knowing what I, uh, what I experienced some of the, you know, I wouldn't say it was negative. It just wasn't the way it should be or could be, um, being able to provide, uh, a more relaxed tone, but still know that it's, uh, it's professional. Um, I try and, and try and do that as best I can, uh, to get them, to get them because then that way they're going to perform better. You know, they're going to be a little more relaxed. They're going to be able to, uh, to have 
access to their brain, uh, if you will. They're going to be able to like, you know, I've got all this stuff leaking out of their ears, but if they're nervous, uh, it's that first two or three questions, it's, uh, you know, you're pulling teeth, um, trying to get an answer out of them. And it's not because they don't know it. It's just because they're nervous. And that's okay. You know, I tell everybody it's okay. Uh, I mean, I'm doing the paperwork on IACRA and they're sitting there and they just blurt out. I'm really nervous right now. <laughs> and I laugh and I go, yeah, me too. You know, um, or, or something like that. I go, that's okay. Um, so, I mean, even, even now when I go out to the training center in Denver, um, it's okay to have a little bit of nerves or a little bit of anxiety to be able to know that, um, you know, there's some, there's something on the line here. Um, but I try and do my best to, to get everybody settled down. Yeah. It, it's something that's got to be tough because like we said, it's, you have to be able to perform. Like you can't baby someone, you can't force feed them the information. Uh, if you do, you're only setting them up for failure in the future. You know, it's like you need to, to, to fix it now and teach them the right way or, or fortunately sometimes have to fail them. Um, one question I want to know, does, what is the FAA's involvement after you kind of have your training? Do they do a yearly checkups? Do they see your pass fail rate and like call you be like, Hey, Stuart, looks like you had a 99% pass rate. We need you to bump that down to an 85 or what, what's their involvement with you when they're done with the training? Yeah, their, um, their interaction with me, uh, is they don't, they don't keep track of that necessarily. And if they do, I was, I've never been told that I'm sure they keep an eye on that. And they probably do have a pass fail rate that they can pull up. I'm pretty sure they do. Um, and I don't, and I certainly don't keep track of it myself. Um, but what they do is, uh, they're required to come out at least once a year, sometimes twice a year for an observation. So they'll come out and sit in on a check ride. And obviously they're going to find an airplane that's going to fit three of us. So, um, if it's a private pilot check ride in a 152, that's not happening. But if it's, uh, you know, in a, in a twin, like a multi-engine rating or, your ATP, they could have easily come out and uh, sat in on. Um, so that's, uh, that's something they do at least once a year. Uh, and sometimes they'll do it uh, twice a year. And then they also have some other things that we're required to do, like recurrent training. And uh, I touch base with them quite often just to give them uh, a heads up on certain things that I see out in the field. Because let's face it, uh, the FA inspectors just don't get a chance to get out there. You know, they're already... Uh, pretty task saturated themselves with, uh, with their daily stuff. So, so the moral of that story you just told is that if you don't want the FAA to be on a check ride, only take check rides on a 152. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Which you can now do for your commercial and initial CFI. You do not need a complex aircraft or a larger airplane to take those check rides. So, so. if anyone wants to get anything out of this podcast, it's <laughs> do it in a 152. That's what I got out of this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You do not want the FAA show. No, actually you can imagine it's a, uh, it's a bit of a chore to try and get, uh, trying to get the, uh, you know, the student uh, or applicant sold off on, you know, Hey Timmy, um, I know you're doing a private pilot check ride tomorrow on the 172 and uh, just put it to half tanks. Cause uh, the FAA is going to come out and ride along with us. Yeah, I don't know if I'd enjoy that too much. I'd be like, oh, I'm not feeling too good today, Stuart. Sorry, man. How about uh, in a month from now? And, and of course, they're, they're usually, okay, thanks, bye. And then about 10 minutes later, I get the phone call from the CFI. Uh, Stuart, uh, we're going to cancel that check right tomorrow. Hilarious. 
Do you think the FAA likes having that kind of like nervous power over people that they like whenever the FAA's name is pulled up, it immediately kind of has people cringe and want to run away. I mean, I don't know. I don't doubt that's what they want to go for, but that's kind of the reputation they have. No, I don't think they, they, they don't. I mean, they, and they do, they're normal guys and gals. They're, you know, they're normal people that, that are just trying to do their deal. And it's unfortunate that there's certain times that uh, you've kind of, kind of have that image um, or mentality about, Oh, here comes the FAA. Uh, but um, all in all, they're, they're just doing their job. They're not. And I tell, I can try and tell, look, they're watching me watch you. They're not, they, this has that guy sitting over in the corner of the room with the FAA badge on is not have any bearing on the outcome of this check, right? Trust me. And it doesn't. Um, I'll, I'm here to tell you and everybody else that's listening. If I get done with the check ride, um, I usually walk over and say, Hey, I thought the kid did a really nice job and I'm going to debrief this, this, and this, and, uh, just letting you know he passed. They just give me that nod. Like, okay, they're just out there to monitor and make sure that I'm, I'm checking all the boxes that I'm required to do when I'm supposed to when conducting that, uh, that practical test. Yeah. You say that, yeah. but even if the FA shows up for a, a latitude check ride, I'm still like, uh, I don't want to do this. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah, no. Uh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I don't, I don't get on the jump seat, you know, at, uh, at United. Absolutely. Yeah. You're like, uh, yeah, <laughs> I'm senior. I'm going to drop this trip. Someone else can take this. <laughs> <laughs> right. Unfortunately, we don't always get that, uh, that, that, uh, long-term notice or notification. Yeah, no, definitely not. And probably for good reason, because everyone would never fly it and the trip would never get done. There you go. So, your whole experience as an examiner has it been as as good as it as good as you would have thought from the beginning? Has it been different? I know we kind of touched on a little bit about who you are as an examiner, but the whole process in general are you getting out of it what you thought you would? Has it been as like beneficial and kind of as impactful as you thought? Overall, yes, I I really I really have, and I still do. Um, I still do uh, thoroughly enjoy it. It's uh, it's just a great. And, and I like the mix, you know, being able to to have the airline uh, experience and then be able to come back and, and constantly be uh, in and out of uh, general aviation and be involved in general aviation aircraft and just the testing side of it. Because even though we're not allowed to teach or instruct during a check ride, the debrief is uh, is where I can really pass along some uh, some information and be able to give these people um, something that they may not have. Uh, had the day before I showed up, you know, so it's, uh, it really has overall been a great experience. And, and the same thing goes with working for the uh, CFIs that recommend these uh, guys and gals for the check ride, being able to give back to them, debrief their, um, what, what instruction they're giving or not giving or how things can, can possibly change. So yeah, I've really had a good time with it. How long did it take for you to feel comfortable giving check rides? I'm sure there was some kind of imposter syndrome at first when you're doing it. You're like, how am I giving this guy? In? I haven't been in a CFI forever. I'm an airline pilot. Was it a kind of a learning experience when you started and it took you a couple of check rides to really feel comfortable or was it kind of a natural fit when you first started? No, it wasn't a natural fit. And I, I was a check airman at Trans States. So there I had the evaluation um, experience you know, to be able to, um, to give line checks and as well as OE, um, at, at that level, but, um, nothing, it's just like being a new CFI or being a new pilot until you go on that first PIC cross country 
and you maybe get into a little bit of weather um, or get turned around a little bit. That's not until you really know. Um, so, you know, the first duration of time that popped in my brain when you said that is probably a solid year. Um, I don't know how many check rides I did in that year. Probably not too many. But yeah, those those first three or four or five, I was I wouldn't say I had no clue what I was doing, but it was it was definitely uh, one of those things where um, you just have to just like anything uh, grow and, and and learn along the way. Where do you see most student pilots or not student pilots? Most check rides kind of stumble. Is it uh, getting all the paperwork ready? Is it actual knowledge for the uh, the oral or is it the flight portion? <laughs> Most of the problems uh, crop up in the flight portion. Um, that being said, um, all the, the other two items that you mentioned, the paperwork and the oral portion, they're certainly there on issues. And um, for all those CFIs out there listening, and many of them already know this because they all have it all set up, but paperwork's huge. Make sure that for all, you know, speak for all examiners out there, make sure that they have everything. Don't, don't put your student in a bad situation for the examiner to show up that day and uh, the paperwork's not even right, or they're missing an endorsement in the back of the logbook. That's just, that's off to a bad start. I, I deal with it and I don't get uptight. I don't, uh, I certainly am not gonna take it out on the student or anything like that. It just is additional time that, that the student doesn't need to be waiting around or hassle with, and certainly the examiner doesn't need it either. Um, and the oral portions usually go pretty well. There are times when, it's clear that they didn't prepare. So, yeah, the flight is usually where that um, most of the problems crop up. And, of course, we could go through the most common failures. But um, of any you know checker, but it depends on is it a private, a commercial, multi-instrument, whatever. So, you Are there questions that you phrase? Like, do you always start a check right out the same with the same questions to try to, like, get them, get them going? Or is it just whatever question comes through first, wherever your eyes kind of meet on the ACS, or how does that work? Yeah, the, the FAA requires us to to have um, kind of a uh, plan of action, which allows us to just have a guideline on what we use to go through to make sure that we meet all the ACS requirements, and they also give us but give us the freedom to to set it up how we'd like to, as long as we cover those those areas of operation and tasks and. Um, Obviously, the big thing in uh, in any testing is scenario-based questions. So um, I do a lot of that. Um, I think I've been told I do more of that than than most. Uh, but I enjoy it. You know, you set up a you set up a, a scenario and pose a a question or just an an issue or a problem, and it allows the uh, the student or the applicant to give me an answer that will pull together more than just, well, VY is 78, you know, uh, you know, that, uh, that rote level of, uh, of learning so they can really, you know, pull that all together. So I don't, it, there are a lot of questions that kind of, that kind of are asked the same from private to private to pilot, you know, so they all, sometimes people, oh, I knew Stuart was going to ask me that, but not always. I do mix it up as much as I can. Um, so you kind of follow a bit of a script, but I, I mix it up a bit. Yeah. I was trying to think like what I would do as you're saying that as an instructor, it's like, <laughs> it would be hard to follow a script the whole time. Cause you, you'd be afraid that 
people talk. And I'm sure you do know that people talk. Like you said, it's like a new steward asked me that question. Uh, when, when you get that kind of reaction, is that kind of like, dang, I need to change things up. I'm too predictable. Or is it like, yeah, I, you knew I was going to ask you that question. Good job. Yeah, no, I've had, I've had, I've actually asked the question and they're sitting on the other side of the table. And as soon as I ask the question or I set up that scenario, they have like a little, you can see just a glimmer of smile in the corner. And, and, and I, and I know they've heard it before and not from me. Right. So, uh, so yeah, I'm like, okay, I need to put that back in the, uh, in the toolbox for a little while and maybe, maybe bring that, dust that off maybe about three or four years from now and come up with something else. So I kind of have to, have to change it up a little bit. Yeah. Um, that's funny. Sometimes when I, when I think about that and many others out there might also have had that same experience, you know, the oral portion seems to go by pretty quickly for the people that are, um, being asked the question for the applicant. And by the time you get done with the check ride and you go back, and, you know, the guy taking this check ride tomorrow says, hey, Timmy, what did he ask you? What did he ask you? He doesn't know. He's his brain is so mushy and excited that he just passed his check ride. He, he can't remember what Stuart asked him in the oral portion four or five, four or five hours ago. Um, so. But then sometimes some of it does stick around, you know, so you just have to stay, keep it somewhat fresh. Yeah. Yeah. There's no way I could do that. Whenever I'm done with a check ride, my brain is done. It's like I, I'm lucky if I remember my name right now, but I can't tell you a single thing we just went over. Yeah, no, it's exactly right. Yeah, it's the same way. I get finished up with a check ride out in Denver, and I'm like, uh, yeah, I'm I'm finished. And you got you know some of your friends will call. So hey, what what was the scenario? Would you guys end up? To, I I can't remember. Yeah. I have no. I I don't know. That's where the whole you'll be fine, man. You've you've done this what twenty times in the last. <laughs> yeah, it's like you'll yeah. be okay. Yeah. Or you might remember like one thing. Oh yeah. He does ask you about uh, the hydraulic system. You're going to need to make sure you review that. And that's usually because you didn't review it enough and you're like, dang it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He's told me on it. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, that is interesting. When you get a check ride at United, do you judge the person doing the check ride or you're like, uh, you're not really supposed to do it like this. Or you kind of just uh, in the United mode and take check ride mode out. I find myself every once in a while doing that, but for the most part, no, I, those guys, um, that's what they do. They're, they're really good at it. You know, the, the instructors, the guys and gals we have out there are really, uh, dialed in. And like you said, I'm more in the, okay, this is my check ride mode. So I need to make sure I'm on point and, um, and doing my job. So I don't really, uh, but every once in a while, I kind of have that creep in my brain, like, eh, not sure if I would have quite handled it that way. <laughs> you're, like, you're not technically supposed to ask me that. <laughs> yeah, but but for the most part, no, I don't. I don't. It doesn't really cross my mind too much. They uh, they do a great, yeah, they do a great job. All right. Well, you said it earlier. Uh, most common failures. We can kind of go like two or three per one if you want. If you want to do that, or if you're allowed to do that. But like private instrument, commercial, whatever. You, what are the most common failures that you see? Uh, sure. So private, private pilot would be probably top of the list, uh, traffic pattern procedures and landings. I guess that's two, but, uh, yeah, traffic pattern procedures and landings. And then every once in a while, some, um, you know, some of the maneuvers like slow flight installs, uh, steep turns. So it's kind of pretty much the whole check, right? But, um, but no, I would say top of the list would be traffic pattern procedures and landings, uh, particularly a short field or soft field landing. 
you know, the soft field landing's not so soft. Um, and, uh, or they just get mixed up getting back into the pattern. Um, instrument check ride, without a doubt, top of the list is holding patterns. And after that, it would be a, uh, some, you know, one of the approaches, probably usually a non precision approach, either missed a step down, blew through an MDA. And on the commercial, mm, same thing, landings, pattern procedures. And every once in a while, a maneuver, but usually it's uh, it's the same thing back in the uh, in the airport area pattern. What about coming up to the more like you have? Uh, do you do those very often? No, no, I do not do those very often, especially now that um, you know the airlines uh, when they are hiring, which they are now, uh, they're usually getting guys that uh, and gals that are trying to get their ATP when they get hired, right? So. Um, that's usually happens, but I still get them every once in a while. And, uh, a lot of times it has to do with the familiarity with the aircraft. So they have to get time in the airplane. I think I can, um, you could probably speak to that. Right. So that was very, you, yeah, that was difficult. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If you haven't flown the airplane and here we are doing a single engine ILS, uh, or just, a, just a regular ILS and you're, you're zipping in on the base and we need to get this thing slowed down and you go blasting through the localizer. It's not, um, it's just because you're not as familiar with the airplane that you have been flying with whatever regular job you've been doing to build your time or, or get out there as a commercial pilot transitioning to the ATP. Yeah, I'd agree. It was, for me, it was very difficult to find the time to fly, to prepare for the check ride. It wasn't so hard to learn the systems because I mean, system, those kind of systems, in a, they're not very complex. You know, they're, they're pretty simple. Uh, you can pretty much read the manual and know that in a couple of days if you study pretty hard. But the flying part was definitely interesting, especially because at the time I was doing like a 10 on four off and we're in Northeast Ohio in the winter time. We barely even got the check ride in. I think the runway was closed for half the day. If I remember correct, correctly because of snow and then we could push it off and your other check ride can't, it was just, it was a mess. That's but, right. Yeah. yeah. Cause it was uh, like the, the, the runway was like icy. It yeah. Was, the runway uh, was full of ice. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was uh yeah, all the all bad conditions going into it, and luckily it cleared up for us. But I think I only had one or two flight, one or two flights in the airplane before I took the check ride, and yeah. never felt comfortable enough to take a check ride. But it's kind of like, well, <laughs> we'll see how this goes. I need to get this done. Yeah. Uh, luckily, everything went well. But it was, uh, it's it definitely yeah. really hard, kind of go back and and learn to fly that airplane because airplanes are very different. I was flying a PC twelve, which I mean is much different than what we we're flying, but it's still, I mean. You're going a little bit faster. You got to slow down. Like it's just your mindset is just very different. And going to a multi-engine plane, it was just it was, it was crazy. And I'm, I'm glad it's over with now. <laughs> There's a lot of stress for that check ride, but it uh, it went well. And and here we are talking about it. So I guess it went pretty well. <laughs> it did. Yeah. yeah. Other than other than the heater not tripping on, and uh, we were freezing to death. It was uh, overall a pretty good uh, pretty good check ride. Yeah. No, I think we were both happy when that was over and we could land and be like, all right, let's go. Oh my up. gosh. Yeah. <laughs> We kind of get inside. Yeah, I do remember that. We were just, uh, could barely peel ourselves out of the airplane. We were just frozen. Yeah. Uh, I got a section for you. I want this, I'm going to do a rapid fire section for you and then uh, talk a little bit about what you got going on on the side as well from your United Hustle, the DPE, and other stuff you're doing. So you're keeping busy, that's for sure. But uh, I got a rapid fire question section and it's just aviation themed questions. And you answer the first question or you answer the question with the first thought that comes to your head. Yikes. Okay. All right. Not too hard. You ready? 
Let's go. What's your favorite airplane of all time? Uh, that's not, that's a long delay. I know. <laughs> uh, I'm going to go triple uh, seven. I flew the triple seven for, uh, for about uh, three or so years. And it would be my overall, my favorite of, of all that I've flown. Favorite corporate jet. Uh, like the Lear, Lear jets, uh, probably, uh, you know, like the Lear 60 or 70 series would be pretty awesome. Favorite plane to do a check ride in. I'm sorry, say it again. Favorite plane to do a check ride in. Bonanza. What's the ugliest airplane you've ever seen? (laughs) Um, Viper Aztec. (laughs) What's something I know, right? I was gonna, I was like, wait a second, you're not wrong. The Aztec is not a beautiful airplane, it's just, it's a truck, that's for sure. Yeah, what's something you wish you knew before you became a pilot? Oh boy, um, I guess the uh, I guess the you know, the um, financial side and time side of it, you know, what uh, the commitment would require. You know, but because uh, you don't, you just go right into it and just try and figure it out as you as you go along. Sometimes people have a very, you know, uh, maybe a better plan. But yeah, that's uh, that's what I would want. Who's been the most influential person in your career? My mom. Yeah, she's always been. Uh, she always she's always been there. You know, she's she always wants to know. Still today, she always want to know uh, where I'm where I'm traveling, what city I'm laying over. Um, what I'm doing and, uh, and especially back early on through flight school and everything, she was, you know, um, whether it was, uh, sending, sending me a, you know, a quick letter or, uh, anything, she was a huge encouragement throughout the process. What's something, I already asked that. What's one person in there? Who is one person in the industry you'd like to meet most? Uh, it could be someone like Bob Hoover, Charles Lindbergh, or it could be, uh, Sullenberg or someone that's alive still today. Yeah, probably Lindbergh or the Wright brothers. I would love to pick their brain and, and just sit to dinner, you know, sit down to dinner with them and, and just talk about those early years and geez, just what they had to go through um, to uh, be able to enjoy the luxuries that you and I enjoy now when we crawl in an airplane. Yeah, I'd love to see their reaction to getting on like an A350 or 787 and seeing the technology that's in airplanes now. They're be like, what the heck? We had no idea. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That would, uh, I know that's kind of probably the default answer, but you know, if you, if you had that opportunity, I don't think any, any pilot would pass that up. What's your favorite thing about aviation? Freedom, uh, being able to, uh, to just have, you know, the freedom that it gives you. What is the hardest approach you've ever flown? Uh, probably was some NDB approach again, dating myself, but, uh, um, yeah, probably some non-precision NDB approach or VOR approach into some, you know, South Bend, Indiana, when it's you know a quarter mile in snow. I've been there before <laughs> many times. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. Something like that. Um, so yeah, I don't miss that. Favorite airport you've ever landed at. Cleveland's a really good airport to land because I'm usually finished up with, uh, <laughs> with my trip. So that's always, that's always a favorite. Um, 
I don't know. I, I really enjoyed going in and out of, uh, out of Zurich, uh, just, uh, Switzerland when I flew the seven, five, seven, six, seven, um, going in into some of those airports in Europe. So Zurich would probably be top of the list when it comes to just cool scenery and arrival departure scenery. Least favorite airport you've ever landed at. Mm, Newark. I hate to say that as a United pilot. I was but, uh, a lot of experience. Yeah, I do. I've been based, it was based there for quite a while as well. No, um, I've yeah, landed, I, I, oh, sorry. No, go ahead. I was say, I've had to land at Newark once or twice, but it was the middle of the night in the pandemic and we're the only airport. Like, land wherever you want. We don't care. <laughs> that was pretty funny. Yeah. Yeah, I, uh, what is the name of that airport? Um, uh, I always had problems when I'd go down there. Um, Port of Spain, Trinidad, Tobago. There's nothing too special about that airport because it's some third world, uh, you know, island country. But um, there was always some issue, whether it was a security issue or, um, you know, some type of uh, customs issue. It was just, it was always a, a problem. So, yeah, going to the islands can be interesting sometimes. Or just separate countries because it's a lot more than just land and get off. There's a lot more to the flight that you have to worry about. It, yeah. Yeah. I had a guy, I just landed 730. We had like 180 people on the back of this airplane and it's 1030 at night. He, just, he was with immigration, the agriculture, Department of Agriculture. And he got on the airplane before anybody got off when we arrived there. And he uh, he wanted to know how you know, what the papers were for the aircraft to be disinfect, disinfected before we left the United States. And that's usually sent with the airlines, usually sent in advance or they already have that information. He didn't, he did not have it. And I have no idea where that is. And here I am just wanting to get to the hotel. It's hot. It's 1030 at night. And I'm calling, you know, downtown Chicago, trying to get the right person on the phone to convince this guy to let all the passengers off the airplane. It was, uh, it was a bad deal. Yeah, you find sometimes that whether he had the information, they want a power trip or sometimes every once in a while you run into someone that just wants to cause a little bit of a fuss and kind of enjoys seeing people struggle. It's unfortunate. I mean, maybe it really truly was an issue, but I feel like a lot of times more often than not, it's someone that wants to just like wield some power and show you that they're in control. And that's what that was exactly. Cause after I finally get like the director of operations on, um, as soon as I hear me talking, he, he, you know, waved his hand and he goes, okay, okay. You could, they can all go now. Yeah. They're like, who was that? It's like, Oh, we talked to him every time we land. <laughs> right. I mean, seriously. Yeah. Would you rather fly IFR or VFR? VFR. Favorite airport food. So let's say you got 30 minutes in Newark, your favorite airport, which like your go-to food to get. It doesn't have to be Newark, but just an airport. If I really want to get food at an airport, it'd be great if it was barbecue. Um, so uh, some some airports have some pretty good barbecue. Um, Charlotte's got a, a, a good barbecue place, don't they? What'd you um, say? Charlotte's got a pretty good barbecue place in their airport, I think. Yeah, it's not too bad at all. I usually go to yeah. Chick-fil-A and Bojangles because I don't have that very often when I'm in Charlotte. So. <laughs> Yeah. But yeah, uh, that's, uh, if I had to, if I had to pick one, if they've got it, that, that wouldn't be bad, but I, I don't know. I usually don't do much, uh, I don't do much food in, uh, in airports. Smart. It's usually smart. Yeah. Would you rather fly over mountains, beaches, or cities? 
Uh, probably beaches. Yeah. Be like another answer to this question, but Airbus or Boeing, if you had to fly one, what would it be? <laughs> yeah. Boeing for sure. <laughs> favorite airline livery. It doesn't have to be United. It can be any airline in the whole world. What's your favorite airline? Well, again, kind of dating myself, but you know, the old school, uh, there was the old school TWA. And then just before TWA went out of business, um, they had the new TWA paint job. And I don't know if you've ever seen that before. Uh, Cause it was a while ago. Uh, obviously it's still not around. It's not around, but, uh, yeah, that was, that was pretty awesome. Um, yeah, that was a pretty cool paint job just because it's a kind of an old classic airline as well, you know? So, uh, that was, that one comes to mind. Yeah, my dad flies for American, former U.S. Airways, kind of went up that way. And he always tells me to this day, he's like, I feel so bad for the TWA guys. Like, they're still screwed over to this day by American. No doubt. No it's doubt. It's insane. Yeah, um, for sure. Would you rather fly? So you're in the 737. You could fly the longest flight possible in the 737. I don't know how long that would be. Or you can do as many short trips in one day. What would you rather do? Uh, probably just the long one. Um, less chance of things going wrong with them, you know, with more cycles, you've got, you've got, uh, you got everything from maintenance issues to, uh, ground stops, you know, you know how that goes. So, uh, and I think the longest one is probably, uh, Fairbanks to Chicago, uh, on the red eye or Chicago to Fairbanks the other way in, into the wind usually just depends, but yeah. Um, and I've done that. That's a long one in that airplane anyway. Yeah. What's the biggest win of your career so far? Looking back at all your accomplishments, is it uh, being an examiner, getting hired at Continental, uh, being a captain? What's the biggest win of your career? I don't know. I don't look at one as as more of an achievement than others, but I really do. I really would say uh, being an examiner uh, is is a pretty nice achievement. I know that I I, just because I enjoy it, you know, and I like I like just uh, being involved in sharing, uh, whether it's a story or, or experiences with, uh, especially the younger people, you know, I've got, you've got people that do check rides that are in their, you know, 50s, 60s. And I've even had a couple of, uh, 70 year olds, uh, doing check rides. Um, but the bulk of them, as you can imagine, are, are younger people, uh, guys and gals, and some of them want to do this for a living. So being able to, to pass stuff along, I think, um, but I don't, it's a hard question. That really is. But I guess if I had to, if I had to pick one, being an examiner is probably uh, right there. You have a regret of your career? Was it maybe not going to the regionals earlier, or was it applying to a different major? Do you have any regrets? Maybe every once in a while it creeps in my brain that I should have left Trans States a little sooner. You know, we were talking about a while back. We were talking about being being comfortable um, and uh, not complacent, but just comfortable and taking it easy. And when I was at Trans States that last year and a half or so, I started seeing people bailing out for the majors. But again, I had a pretty comfortable schedule. I was making more money than I ever made, which wasn't still a lot, but I was making, you know, but as a Czech airman, I was kind of doing my thing. and was enjoying that and uh, had a good schedule. And finally, when I remember doing a, uh, you know, a OE for a, a new hire, um, I, I went into the ops room and I said, where's, and where's Jeff? I just did his, uh, I haven't seen him in like uh, three weeks. He just finished up his, uh, his training with me. Oh, you didn't hear? Yeah. He got hired at United. I'm like, what? 
And I just, you know, that just really opened my eyes. I'm like, okay, I got to get the heck out of here. <laughs> yeah, you're like, what's wrong with this picture? Why is yeah, Jeff I, United, not me? Yeah, I just, he just was a new hire at Trans States. And now he's, uh, and I'm not sure what his background was that allowed him to, to move that quickly. But nonetheless, yeah, that uh, it kind of kicked me in the butt, right, to get moving. Uh, last couple of questions. Would you rather fly Piper or Cessna? Mm, Piper. Um, yeah. As I have, as I have told others, uh, just remember, uh, Boeing didn't make a high wing airplane. So <laughs> if they did, it would be a Boeing. <laughs> right. If you had to be a passenger on a CRJ or an ERJ, what would you choose? And I guess to make C- it even harder. Oh, you were going to say oh. CRJ? Oh yeah, no doubt. That's just like easy right there. What about if it was a 175 though? Those are pretty comfortable. Yes. That's a whole nother, I know. that's a whole nother ball game right there. Yeah. That's the, uh, what do they call it? The regional heavy? <laughs> that's right. It's a nice airplane. I've, I've been up front. It's a, it's a great airplane. It is a solid airplane. I honestly, it's probably one of my favorite airplanes to be a passenger on. Yes, I would, I would agree. Um, that looks comfortable up front and it's certainly, um, a nice ride in the cabin. All right. Last question for you. This is not a rapid fire question for you, but obviously this career is insane and it has been proven this last year. You have more experience with this as being furloughed in the past with nine 11 went through the 08 financial crisis and you're going through this pandemic as well. And each one you've probably seen different things. I'm not sure if you're furloughed during the 08 financial crisis or not, but as your seniority has grown, you probably have a different outlook based on everything. What do you think about this career now? Like saying to someone that's coming up right now, you're giving them their commercial check ride and they're really excited. Are you still excited about an outlook in this career? Uh, everything that you've seen, would you still recommend people to go after it full go and make a good career out of it? Uh, I would. I would definitely continue to recommend it. Uh, it's, it has definitely had its bumps in the roads, to, in the road to say the least. It, there's lots of obstacles that... Um, not just myself, but all of us have had to uh, overcome to get to where we are or where we're going to go. But I would, I would highly recommend it. And I, I say that to those that I do check rides for that are curious about, because uh, not all of them know that I'm an airline pilot as well when I go give a check ride, but some of them do. And they'll ask me. And that's my answer is without a doubt, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't do anything else. I don't know what else I would do. Uh, but yeah, you, you're gonna have you're gonna have setbacks. It doesn't matter. You're gonna have some uh, some bumps in the road, but you got to keep pressing on because well worth it. It's a it's a great career, a lot of fun. So if anyone's listening to this right now and they are in Northeast Ohio or in Ohio in general or Pennsylvania, they want to make the trip out to Northeast Ohio. Where can they go to sign up to take a check ride with you? Actually, Justin, because um, I, I do check rides all over the place, but they can go to my website. Uh, pilotcheckride.com and I have a online scheduling feature there uh, and they can uh, they can check my schedule um, they can actually book the appointment and when they book the appointment it gives them all the details as well as it kicks them their uh, cross country and weight balance problem so um, they can do all that online uh, without without necessarily uh, tracking me down which they're always welcome to do uh, by just giving you know give me a call as well but uh, but the website's got great information, not just for booking a check ride, but also a lot of things that we talked about. Yeah, I actually remember using, I'm on the website right now. It's like, I remember full and well using this uh, when I was booking a check ride oh, okay. with you in Northeast yeah. Ohio. Yeah. Uh, 
Yeah, I definitely went through this as well. Looks like you got more examiners on there too, so that's exciting. Yeah, I actually uh, was about the you know three or four years ago. I you know I really started looking at had plenty of calls from all over the country. You know, hey, can you do my check ride down here in Fort Lauderdale or in San Diego? And I I started thinking, well, maybe if I get some other examiners to be on the website. So if there are any DPEs uh, listening out there, any examiners that want to be able to simplify. Their, their scheduling and have a, a one-stop place for them, for their students and, and CFIs to go and, and book their appointments. They can certainly do that uh, by clicking on the link on the homepage, I believe, on DP Info, or um, they can always call me directly or or, uh, or email me. So Stuart at pilotcheckride.com. So I, I've got that set up. It's kind of a nice deal where we can um, we get other examiners on board the website and then make it uh, really easy for more and more people around the country to schedule their check ride. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it can be difficult to schedule a check ride. It's kind of like a uh, old man's club, I feel like, too, where they have all these flight instructors kind of on, not on payroll per se, but you know what I mean? Like, it's like this flight school only does check rides with him. You know, it's like that doesn't have, that's not how it has to be. You can take a check ride with pretty much whoever you want. So, I mean, depending on what you're doing, but yeah, so I think the website's cool and I hope to, to continue to see it grow. I appreciate that. Thanks. Yeah. It's, uh, it's really been well received. Good. And then last but not least, we we're talking earlier about how you're going to come out with a podcast here soon, correct? I have, uh, you have inspired me. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I've been listening to you. Uh, matter of fact, I think we were talking, uh, it, it was something that you mentioned on the ATP check ride I gave you. And, uh, I, of course, didn't know anything about podcasts. I think a lot of people didn't, um, even though it wasn't that long ago. Uh, but it was uh, still something that I wasn't into. But as I've been able to um, kind of, you know, test or sample the waters a little bit, as you know, people thrive, you know, and search for check right information. So uh, I thought um, a podcast uh, regarding check rides. So the Pilot Check Ride podcast is soon to come. Uh, we're very close to getting episode one out. And my goal is to just be able to provide some insight and tips and interview people that have taken check rides or getting ready to take check rides, other examiners and CFIs to really get some great information about the practical test process and, and how that works and training as well. We're going to cover all and probably sprinkle in some airline stuff um, in there. But um, yeah, soon to, uh, to be available wherever you find your podcast. Good. I love it, man. That's exciting. I think there's a good need for that. So let me know if I can help in any way. But Stuart, I appreciate you coming to the podcast. It's crazy to, to see how life can come full circle. And you were giving me a check ride a couple of years ago. And now I am in the power seat interviewing you. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's That's wild. Awesome. I'm uh, yeah, glad to be here and uh, glad to be able to, to give me the time to, uh, to talk to you. It's, uh, it's great to catch up. Yeah, anytime. I, I appreciate you coming on and uh, hopefully one day you can fly me to the latitude on, a, on an airline flight. That'd be pretty cool. That'd be great. Happy to do it. Well, Stuart, thank you so much. I appreciate your time and I hope you have a great day. Okay, Justin, take care. Bye. And that is a wrap on Stuart Corey's episode. If you enjoyed this podcast, like I said earlier, please leave us a review. Check out Pilot's Coffee. Hi at the Pilot on Instagram and TikTok. I just redownloaded it. So go follow us there. Who knows if I'm making any videos here, but you never know. I just might. I hope you guys are having a great time and I hope you guys had a great Memorial Day remembering those who served and remembering the point of the holiday. I hope you guys are all staying safe. I hope you guys are all flying as much as possible. 
And I hope everyone is having a good time listening to the podcast. If you ever want to reach out to me, reach out to me on Instagram at pilotthepilot or send me an email at justin at pilotscoffee.com or pilotthepilothq.com. Even Nation, hope you guys are having a great day. And as always, happy flying.